Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today, we present a 15-year-old girl who's admitted for shock after returning from a recent travel to Nigeria. Here's the case presented by Rahul Demania. We have a 13-year-old female with no significant past medical history who presents with four days of fever, headache, watery, non-bloody diarrhea, as well as non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. She has decreased PO intake with worsening myalgias, fatigue, and weakness. She had traveled with her mother to Nigeria earlier this month and returned about a week ago. Over the weekend, mom consulted her pediatrician who prescribed an anti-emetic without significant improvement of her symptoms. Once the patient progressed to becoming lightheaded and weak, the mom decided to actually bring her into the ED, where she was found to have tachycardia and hypotension. She required three liters of crystalloid resuscitation, was started on a continuous epinephrine infusion, and was transferred to the pediatric intensive care unit. She was found to have acute kidney injury with an elevated creatinine, as well as a primarily direct hyperbilirubinemia and associated anemia and thrombocytopenia. To continue the case, her other history elements were notable for fever and difficulty breathing. Prior to traveling to Nigeria, she did receive travel vaccinations and took mefloquine prophylaxis. She also had a negative COVID screen. While in Nigeria, she pertinently denies exposure to animals, any raw food intake, and only really recalls a few mosquito bites. But she says that this was well after coming back from Nigeria and was present until about seven days prior to her ED presentation. She's now in the PICU. She has hypotension, tachycardia at 160 beats per minute, tachypnea, and normal saturations. Her physical exam is notable for cool peripheral extremities, right upper quadrant tenderness, and bilateral crackles. She had no murmurs or gallops on her initial exam, and pertinently, she has no rash, lymphadenopathy, or scleral ictus. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, so we have a teenage girl who has fever and constitutional symptoms after returning from travel abroad. She now presents with fluid refractory shock, tachycardia that is out of proportion to dehydration, and signs of end organ failure. Notable negatives include there is no lymphadenopathy, hyperosplenomegaly, or a rash. And synthesizing these symptoms together, we are thinking that this picture may be related to a contracted infection or inflammatory condition, probably related to a travel. Let's transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. Pradeep, what are key history features in this child who presents with fever and shock after a recent travel outside the United States? Rahul, this teenage girl has diarrhea and emesis days before presentation to the ED. She has high fever with no rash. Her mental status is maintained, although she did have a headache on and off. Uh, she felt lightheaded and had weakness as symptoms probably suggestive of dehydration and even shock. And physical exam findings of importance here include patient presenting with tachycardia, signs of poor perfusion such as delayed cap refill, cool extremities, 
and hypotension. It is unique that even though she has right upper quadrant pain, there is no jaundice. So Pradeep, are there some red flag symptoms or physical exam components which you could highlight in a patient who presents like the one in our case? Rahul, I think weakness, lightheadedness, shock, tachycardia, poor perfusion, fever, and evidence of multi-organ dysfunction are suggestive of an acute and possibly life-threatening infection acquired during her travel. Given her travel to West Africa, I would be worried about falciparum malaria, dengue fever, typhoid fever, and even cholera. Other diseases to be concerned about, especially given her travel history, include leptospirosis, chikungunya, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, African tick bite fever, etc. I would also be concerned about bacterial sepsis with a source such as kidney, bowel, or intrapelvic organs. Rahul, to continue with our case, can you discuss the patient's uh, labs? Sure. Our patient's labs were significant for anemia, thrombocytopenia, all the way down to 12,000 platelets, leukopenia with a predominance of segmented neutrophils, and on her smear, her RBC morphology was described as normal. She had an elevated BUN and creatinine with no acidemia. She had elevated liver enzymes, including total bilirubin, although her synthetic function was preserved. And she also had elevated lactate, which, as you alluded to, could represent shock, and a BNP of 309, which is elevated, and troponin of 11.5, which is also elevated. Given her fever and travel history, the emergency department also set a large volume blood culture, as well as thick and thin smears for malaria, which we will discuss later on in this podcast. In the PICU, after consulting with the Infectious Disease Service, we sent GIPCR, Dengue serologies, as well as other infectious antigens and serologies. We also did an EKG and an echocardiogram, given her tachycardia and shock presentation. And interestingly, when she did come up to the pediatric ICU, we got a call from the lab that reported a malarial parasite that was positive and seen on her smear at 0.8%. And once the ID attending examined the smear, the physician confirmed multiple ring forms in cells, which is consistent with the diagnosis of plasmodium falciparum, but smear is unable to really exclude other types of malaria. A PCR for speciation of the type of malaria was also sent as confirmation. So Rahul, can you summarize the case so far? Sure. So now we have a 13-year-old female who presented with fever, shock, and multi-organ dysfunction in the setting of a recent travel. And given the findings of falciparum malaria on our blood smears, we are going to confirm a diagnosis of acute severe malaria in this patient. Even though her parasitemia level is less than 5%, her clinical presentation of shock, AKI, suggests that she does indeed have severe malaria. Rahul, can you present to us the short multiple choice question? Absolutely. A patient with severe falciparum malaria who presents with shock, AKI, and a parasitemia of 10% with inability to keep PO medications down due to emesis should have which of the following drugs initiated? A, quinidine, B, artesmesin, C, artesunate, D, doxycycline. 
And Rahul, I think the correct answer here is IV artensunate. It is recommended by the CDC as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics Red Book. IV quinidine is no longer available in the U.S. Excellent point. Artemisin can be used if the patient is able to tolerate PO while awaiting the IV artesunate. Drugs like doxycycline are really slow-acting antimalarials, and they wouldn't take effect until well after 24 hours. And again, time is of essence in severe malaria. Other PO medications which can be used include artemether lumefantrin, also known as coartem, and this is used because of its fast onset of action, as well as atovaquone and proguanil, also known as malarone as the brand name, quinine, and mefloquine. As for any malarial treatment, the interim regimen should not include the medication used for chemoprophylaxis if possible. In this case, you wouldn't use mefloquine because in the history, she did take that prior to leaving for travel. Rahul, as you think about this case, what would be your differential? Well, Pradeep, this is very interesting. And broadly speaking, you want to really think about other causes of fever and shock with multi-organ dysfunction. The kicker in this case is the recent travel outside of the United States. Now, common things being common, you would be thinking about sepsis and you would want to identify an underlying source. So think about pyelonephritis, pneumonia, ruptured appendicitis, ovarian abscess, etc. In this case, she may have a negative blood culture, so that would rule against that. Leptospirosis, you would think about the history being more related to exposure to rodent or food contaminated with rodent urine or feces. In this case, our patient doesn't necessarily have conjunctivitis, rash, or jaundice that would necessarily go with that presentation. Typhoid fever, we would technically see on a GI-PCR. Dengue fever, characteristically, it has this breakbone fever as well as severe myositis and myalgias. Chikungunya doesn't really have any joint pain or rash, and this uh, essentially argues against that differential. Ebola, remember this patient doesn't have diffuse bleeding from various orifices and is not in a DIC-like picture. And then other elements which you sh could think about are just the run-of-the-mill food poisoning and hypovolemic shock secondary to dehydration. Now, given the current pandemic, we always want to think of SARS-CoV-2, especially in this child who is not vaccinated. Her presentation with fever, GI symptoms, and shock could be a manifestation of multisystem inflammatory syndrome, or MISC. In this case, you would want to send a SARS-CoV-2 antibody. And I do want to make a plug for those who are listening to this podcast. Please get you, as well as your loved ones, the COVID vaccine ASAP. It saves lives. Rahul, if a patient develops a fever or symptoms 21 days after travel to a foreign country, certain diseases like dengue, rickettsial infection, Zika virus infection, and viral hemorrhagic fevers are very unlikely, regardless of the traveler's exposure history. Infectious causes may be further narrowed by pre-travel vaccinations and chemoprophylaxis. Although neither approach is 100% effective, like a patient who did not take a mefloquine, uh, mefloquine correctly. The incubation period, time to onset of malaria symptoms, 
in most cases ranges as soon as seven days after bitten by the infected mosquito to about 30 days and is actually the shortest for Plasmodium falciparum and longest for Plasmodium malariae. So Pradeep, let's transition here. And if you had to work up this patient with severe malaria, what would be some of the lab investigations you would send? That's a good question, Rahul. Fever in a returning traveler requires a good history and a physical exam. Besides a complete blood count with a differential, comprehensive metabolic panel, CRP, Procal, blood culture, especially with a large volume of blood, a UA, a urine culture, and this patient with a shock and poor perfusion, I would send a lactate, get a chest x-ray, EKG, and an echocardiograph. After consulting with our infectious disease colleagues, I would send a thick and thin uh, smear to look for malaria parasite. The thick film allows for concentration of the blood to find parasites that may be present at low density, whereas the thin film is most useful for species identification and determination of the density of red blood cells infected with parasites. If initial blood smears test negative for plasmodium species, but malaria remains a high possibility, the smear should be repeated every 12 to 24 hours during a 72-hour period, ideally with at least three smears. Serologic testing, also called as RDT or rapid diagnostic test, generally is not helpful. PCR is most useful to confirm species of malaria. If there is diarrhea and vomiting, then a GI-PCR and testing for SARS-CoV-2 may be useful. If there are respiratory symptoms, respiratory viral panel, which includes SARS-CoV-2, must be performed. Serologic testing for dengue, chikungunya, leptospirosis, and rickettsiosis may be required. If there is fever with abdominal pain or tenderness, suspect acute cholangitis uh, due to stones, liver flukes, liver abscess, which can be pyogenic or amoebic, and this may require an ultrasound, blood cultures, or even stool examination. Practitioners need to keep in mind that the returning traveler may present with ruptured appendicitis, UTI, pyelonephritis, and even pancreatitis. These conditions need to be sought with appropriate lab and imaging. Pradeep, that was an excellent, exhaustive lab investigation list. Let's summarize. Specifically related to malaria, we want to think about thick and thin smears. And remember, the thick smears actually finds the parasites, whereas the thin smears are used for species identification, as well as the density of how many red blood cells are actually infected. So now, if we have our history, physical exam, and diagnostic investigation lead us to severe malaria as your diagnosis, what would be your general management framework? Rahul, let me reiterate that a patient is said to have severe malaria if the patient's parasite load is greater than 5% or if the patient has any of the following. Impaired consciousness, seizures, circulatory collapse, shock, pulmonary edema or acute respiratory distress syndrome, acidosis, acute kidney injury, abnormal bleeding or DIC, jaundice, which must be accompanied by at least another sign, and severe anemia with hemoglobin less than 7 grams per deciliter. I would also like to point out that a condition called cerebral malaria is characterized by altered mental status and manifested with a range of neurologic signs and symptoms, including generalized seizures, 
signs of increased intracranial pressure, uh, which can present as confusion and progress to coma or stupor or death. Any patient with severe malaria requires admission to the PICU as there can be a rapid decline in the patient's clinical status. Initial management of airway, breathing, followed by resuscitation with balanced intravenous fluid should be started. Frequent checks as well as correction of glucose and electrolyte imbalances is recommended as well as close monitoring of urine output. Rahul, our patient had mild cardiomegaly on chest x-ray, mildly depressed cardiac function on echo, and mild elevation of a BNP and troponin. Can you shed some light on myocardial depression in patients with severe malaria? Pradeep, this is actually very interesting, so let's go into it. Initially, our patient presented in shock, so a quick echo done at bedside, revealing this mild to moderate cardiac dysfunction and pertinently having no pericardial effusion is important to highlight. When we think about the EKG findings, our patient actually had diffuse ST segment elevation. And so as a result, not surprisingly, her troponins are going to be elevated. In terms of management, this patient was started on epinephrine and milrinone for this cardiac dysfunction, and her echo and EKG findings were correlated with elevated biomarkers, and these were biomarkers that we wanted to trend throughout the course of her illness. Remember that the mainstay of treatment of severe malaria and this myocarditis picture consists of hemodynamic cardiac support and treatment of the underlying malarial infection. As we treated her malaria, we actually saw gradual improvement of her cardiac function. And she, after discharge, ended up getting a cardiac MRI, and that did not reveal any chronic changes and was actually completely normal. Now, let me highlight a very important paper published in the Pediatric Critical Care Medicine Journal in 2018. And this paper looked at myocardial function and injury by echocardiography and cardiac markers in African children with severe plasmodium falciparum malaria. The authors in this study reported from their echocardiographic data that most children, over 95% of children with severe plasmodium falciparum malaria, have normal ejection fraction despite some elevation of the cardiac biomarkers. Although there was evidence for myocardial injury, i.e. elevated cardiac troponins, this did not correlate with cardiac dysfunction. Pradeep, let's go into specific elements of management. How do you approach severe malaria? What are the specific treatments? So Rahul, remember CDC malaria clinicians are on call 24-7 to provide advice to healthcare providers on the diagnosis and treatment of malaria and can be reached through the CDC malaria hotline. Now for severe malaria, which this teenager has, IV artensunate is the drug of choice. If patient is able to take PO, the patient should be treated with artimeter lumafentrin, also called as coartem, because of its very fast onset of action, or atovacone proguanil, which is melarone. When IV artensunate arrives, immediately discontinue the oral medication and start the IV therapy. Each dose of IV artensunate is given at 2.4 milligrams per kilo. A dose should be given at zero hour, 12 hours, and 24 hours. Patient on treatment for severe malaria should have one set of blood smears, thick and thin smears, performed every 12 to 24 hours 
till a negative result, i.e. no plasmodium parasites are detected, is reported. If after the third IV dose, the patient parasite density is still greater than 1%, then IV artensunate treatment should be continued with the recommended dose once a day for maximum of seven days until parasite density is less than equal to 1%. Doses given at 0, 12, and 24 hours count as day one, which means the patient then requires six additional days of therapy. Clinicians should proceed with a full course of oral follow-on treatment as soon as parasite density is less than 1% and the patient is able to tolerate oral medications. IV artensunate is safe in infants and children and even pregnant women in the second and third trimesters. The only formal contraindication to IV artensunate is a known allergy to IV artemisins. All persons treated for severe malaria with IV artensunate should be monitored weekly for up to four weeks after their treatment initiation for evidence of delayed onset hemolytic anemia. As for any malaria treatment, the regimen selection should not include the medication used for chemoprophylaxis. Previously, CDC recommended exchange transfusion, which was to be considered for severely ill persons. However, exchange transfusion has not been proven beneficial in adequately powered randomized control trial. In 2013, CDC conducted an analysis of cases of severe malaria treated with exchange transfusion, and they were unable to demonstrate a survival benefit of the procedure. Considering this evidence, CDC no longer recommends the use of exchange transfusion as an adjunct procedure for treatment of severe malaria. Rahul, this is an excellent case. Can you conclude with some key objective takeaways from this case? Absolutely. So for our listeners today, I have three summary points from today's case. Number one, fever and shock in the returning traveler is sometimes encountered in the pediatric intensive care unit. So we have to have a high index of suspicion. After initial attention to our basic airway, breathing, and circulation, we need to take a good history and do a thorough physical examination. A coordinated effort with our infectious disease colleagues is crucial. Number two, if severe malaria is diagnosed, regardless of the species, the patient should be given IV artesunate per the CDC guidelines. PO atovacone proguanil can be used while awaiting IV artensunate. Finally, intensivists should adhere to basics of good PICU care. And this also includes appropriate PPE and isolation for the patient in conjunction with infection control. They should not forget that the returning traveler can present with just run-of-the-mill sepsis and underlying infections, which we talked about earlier in this episode. Antibiotics should be considered before waiting the results of diagnostic tests, especially if there is suspicion of sepsis. This concludes our PQ mini case series episode on fever and shock in the PQ patient after recent travel. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.
Thank you.